All right, y'all. Good morning. Yeah. <laughs> it's 9.30. We're going to go ahead and get rolling. It's good that y'all could be here this morning. If you don't know me, my name is Michael Walters. I'm one of the elders here at the church. And um, let me go ahead and open us up in prayer, and then we'll get started. Holy Father, we thank you for um, your mercy today that we could come and... Hey, Chris, we're praying. <laughs> You're good, brother. Thank you that we can come and that we can, um, we can talk about marriage, the sacred gift that you have given to us. Um, thank you for the way that it shows your character and that it, it magnifies your love to your people. pray that you would bless our conversation, that your spirit would be present, and that you might teach us all something that we can learn and apply about you and about ourselves. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. All right, so if you didn't grab a handout, there are handouts there in the back. Um, Mark Butman talked about singleness last week, and then we're going to transition the next two weeks to looking at marriage in particular. So this week we're going to be looking at what is marriage. We're going to be talking more about kind of some of the definitions and some of the relationships. And then next week, Garrett's going to be talking about why marriage. So we're going to be looking at a little bit more of like, how does that flush out? What are some of the impacts? and um, some of the more practical applications of some of these ideas. So um, to get us started, though, I did want to throw up just a real quick diagram to kind of guide us where we're going. And forgive my artwork, it's terrible. But um, So when we come to marriage, I think we normally, we normally are thinking about union between a husband and a wife. And we're definitely going to talk about that today. But I think... We also want to do, and we also want to take a look at the, the relationship coming from God and how God defines it and how God understands it. And then we also want to think about how marriage is going to bless and impact others that are around the marriage. And so that's kind of where we're going to go today. We're going to look at this aspect, the vertical aspect, in terms of how God has defined and instituted marriage. We're going to talk about this marriage covenant, where two people enter together under God into a lifelong covenant. And then we're going to, we're going to briefly mention how marriage looks outward and is designed as a blessing for those that, that come into contact with it. Um, so you, you see your, your big idea there at the top of the handout. Marriage is a, a lifelong covenant between one man and one woman defined and enacted by God that is designed to bear fruit and showcase God's special, intimate love for his people. So we're going to just dive right in there to the first point, that marriage is something that God does and God defines. Um, Let's all flip to Matthew chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19, uh, and we're going to look at the first six verses. Someone can go ahead and read that when they get it. One to six, yep. Now when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, 
Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Thanks, Eric. So in, in the Pharisees trying to stump Jesus, Jesus is going to give an answer that gives us an understanding of the Old Testament, and Christ is going to explain for us what marriage is. So he's, he's going to quote there um, Genesis 1, 26 and 27, where God says he made them male and female, both made in the image of God. Um, and then he's going to apply that verse, which in context, Genesis 1, 26 doesn't necessarily seem like it's related to marriage. Um, but Christ is going to say that it does, that in marriage, there's a, a man and there's a woman. So I think that, the, that this is really kind of where we have to start, is understanding that, that marriage is something that comes from God. So marriage isn't a social institution. It's not just a covenant between two individuals, but it's an institution that God defines, and God defined all the way back at the creation of the universe. So this is an institution that has run the course of human history, and it's an institution that, that God has a great stake in. We're going to talk a little bit more about what that institution says about God here in just a minute. Um, so I think that it, it's helpful then, just starting here, that God says that marriage is a man and a woman. The definitions that fall outside of that aren't really a marriage, right? So you can call it whatever you want if you have a man and a man. But if, an institu- if marriage is an institution from God and it doesn't fit that definition, then that's not actually a marriage, even if you choose to call it that. Um, so I think that, that that's really where it starts in the first place. And then you also see there um, in verse 6, so um, God defines it as a man and a woman. And then you notice there in verse 6, so the two are no longer one flesh. What God has joined together, let not man separate. So I think that, that right up front, we get this, we get this picture that marriage is this covenant that's not supposed to be broken. Once I enter into the marriage covenant, that marriage covenant is supposed to last. It's supposed to have a holding power. And then we're going to see in a couple other places in Scripture, this is really a lifelong covenant, that really what breaks the marriage covenant is, is death. And so for those of you that are married, what was it that you said in your marriage vows? <laughs> Until death do us part. And I think for Christians... Because we understand that this is a covenant that God instituted, that God defines this covenant as something that's supposed to last for life, those marriage vows mean something. We're not just saying those marriage vows because it's something that we've always said for hundreds of years. We're saying it because we mean it. We think that it's true. We think that it's good that God defined marriage this way, and so that we, we joyfully want marriage to last for a lifetime. Um, I think that it's also interesting when you say for life, that also means that once life ends, that marriage has, has also ended. So let's flip over um, just a couple um, past chapters over to Matthew chapter 22. Um, Matthew chapter 22. So um, we're going to read in verse 29. So the Sadducees, another group of religious leaders are going to come to Christ and they're going to try to stump Christ because they don't actually believe in the resurrection. They're going to present this scenario where a man marries a woman, that man dies, and so the brother of the man marries the woman and and so on uh, through several different brothers. 
and all the way down to the seventh brother. And then their question is, okay, so Jesus, if you believe in the resurrection, who's this woman actually married to when they're resurrected to the new life? So that's, that's a context in which Christ is going to answer. Can someone read um, verses 29 uh, down through 33? So you see right there in the middle that in the resurrection of the dead, we're not married anymore, right? The point of marriage is to show us the relationship of God to his people. And so it would be, it'd be like the shadow still existed even though you were in the, in the presence of the sun. There's no reason for marriage at that point. And so I think that it's important for us to remember that, that marriage is great. Marriage is a wonderful gift that God has given, but, but marriage is temporary, this world, which is also temporary, marriage is part of this world. And once this world is renewed and the new creation comes and we're in the presence of God himself, marriage as an institution doesn't exist because we're in, in God's presence. And what marriage points us towards, we're actually there. We actually have Christ. We actually have the fulfillment of what marriage is supposed to, to point us to. Um, so God defines marriage. It's one man. It's one woman. It's for this life, not for eternity, but for this life and all of this life while both of those people still live. Um, And then also with that, there come certain guards around the marriage bed. So God prescribes the bounds of sexual relations to within that institution of marriage. Sex is only supposed to happen between one man and one woman within the marriage covenant. Um, Let's go to Hebrews chapter 13, verses 4 and 5. Someone get those two verses for me when you get there. The marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from love of money, and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Yeah, thank you. So this is something, this is an institution that God has said that he will judge those that violate the parameters that he's set up to guard and protect the institution of marriage. So to step outside of that is sexual immorality. So for people that, that aren't married and engage in sexual activity, that would be immorality. For a married person to step outside of this covenant and engage in sexual activity, that would be adultery, and that would also be immorality in God's eyes. So this is a really high standard, um, and I think... I think maybe sometimes we miss just how crazy this sounds to our natural minds. Um, go back in Matthew 19, if you keep reading on, uh, down in verses 11 and 12. Sorry, let's start, we'll start up in verse 10. In verse 10, after he's just explained this idea to the disciples, the disciples said to him, if such is a case with a man and his wife, it is better not to marry. I mean, the disciples are like, Jesus, this is crazy. <laughs> 
this isn't actually going to work. Um, you can't actually expect people to stay together for their entire life. It doesn't work that way. And Jesus said to him, Not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. Um, for there are eunuchs from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been eunuchs by men. And there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom. Let the one who is able to receive it, receive it. And so I think that the, that the natural man finds this hard. So I guess that's a, a question out to you guys. Why, why is this hard? Why is this something that, that our, our souls don't necessarily embrace and something that we kind of struggle with from time to time? Yeah, there certainly can be some awkwardness from time to time, yeah. Sabrina's having a hard time hearing. <laughs> so because there's two sinners that are in this covenant, this is something that's really hard to do because of our, our sin natures that are at war with each other. That's great. Justina? Understand this picture that you're right. a part right. of. It's false. Yeah. It's going through the motions without the commitment. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's really good. Oh, yep, yeah, more, Greg? I think also in, in marriage, because of the closeness of the relationship, our own sinfulness is exposed to the other person's Yeah, it's just hard to keep those fig leaves up when you're so close to another person. <laughs> That's great. Yeah, I mean, I think, I, think you guys, I think you guys really hit on it. This is such an intimate relationship. And this relationship was meant for two perfect people in a perfect world. 
we don't live there anymore. There's brokenness. You're broken. Your partner, your spouse is broken. That marriage covenant itself has been warped and twisted by your sinful heart to serve its ends instead of serve the end that God has designed it for. So I think it's really important that because we do live in that fall, that we come back and remind ourselves that marriage is not something for us. It's not something that our love or our commitment sustains because if it was based on that, (laughs) marriages wouldn't last. Marriages in the world don't last that are based on that. For the Christian, though, marriage is something that comes from God. It's something that he sustains by his grace and by his spirit. And so I think even at the outset, this should be causing us to look Godward. So the, the two people in the marriage really should be looking up to Christ, looking up to God to understand that this is the source and the protection of their marriage, that God's the one that defined it and God's the one that's going to, to protect that institution that they have entered into. Um, so then the, the second point, not only is something that... Uh, God has defined. It's also something that he, he does. So staying there in Matthew uh, chapter 19 in verse 5, um, it's really fascinating that when Christ is reading Genesis chapter 2, the quote there in Matthew chapter 5, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. Christ interprets that down there in verse 6 to say that this is something that God has joined together. So this is something that God does. I think this is true for, for every marriage, regardless if it's a marriage that happens in the church or marriage that happens with a judge and the justice of the peace or marriage that happens between two Muslims. This is something that God has done, that God is the one that has brought these two people together. And so that even as fallen image bearers, sinful people still bear the image of God, so two fallen, broken marriages also still portray the love of God for his people. Um, so God's the one that, that makes a marriage, and, and he uniquely does that by making two people into one flesh so that they're no longer... God doesn't think of them as two separate people. He, in some mysterious way, thinks of them as one. It's the same mysterious way that he thinks of himself as one with his bride, um, the church. Christ with the bride of his church. And so I think there's some implications that just kind of naturally flow from that. Paul talks about some of those uh, in 1 Corinthians 7, 3 through 5, where he just says that, um, that husbands and wife have rights to each other in a way that no other relationship does. So the husband has to give his rights to the wife and the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except for limited agreement that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but come together again that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Uh, so but that, that's all based on the fact that a husband and a wife have a right to each other's body is based on the fact that God took action and God made them into one. And so those rights, just to kind of come back to the, the covenant relationship here, those rights don't exist outside of something that God has made. And so until God makes that union, until God makes the two one, those rights don't exist. And so I think that there's a, there's a lot that that would speak through our culture in terms of um, both what kinds of activities we let ourselves engage in. But even in the Gospels, Christ is going to apply this to the, the thoughts and the intents of our heart, right? So that if I'm in a marriage covenant 
and I look outside the marriage covenant and I, I wish that I could have something that's outside of it, Christ says that's adultery. That in my heart I'm committing adultery and that, that God sees that as the same. Um, so, so that's the first point. Marriage is something that God does and something that God defines. Are there any thoughts or questions? Yeah. I don't want to take it too far off the rails, but it's always something I've struggled with when I think about the biblical definition of marriage. So, with the Bible specifically talking about marriage, it always talks about one man and one woman. Mm-hmm. But then throughout the Old Testament, you see polygamy. And then I know, like, you see negative consequences that usually happen from polygamy, but it's not addressed as sin. Like, all these other sins, like, you know, sexual morality, homosexuality. Um, all these things like God says, these are sins that you will not do. But this is one that seems to be like left, like, hey, like, okay, I'm going to, like, let you guys do this and not call it out. Yeah. Which made me struggle with, like, well, if this is, if that's sin, why isn't it, like, more defined that way? But, yeah, I mean, that is a great rabbit trail. <laughs> <Yeah>. So, I... <laughs> Uh, Jeremiah, did you have something you wanted to add before we... I would yeah. say that not every sin you see in the Bible records the consequences of God. So there are consequences that we may have with And in most of the cases of polygamy in the Old Testament, you see that there were problems that um, evolved from that. I mean, when you think of... Uh, uh, the not Abraham, but one of those... Um, you got two wives, Rachel and Leah, and there was tension there. David, many wives, he had issues with them and then even management uh, or raising up his children so it show it, it may not expressly have said in the Old Testament this is wrong but it showed the consequences of that union being incorrect so I, I would kind of point to that and say hey this is why that's that's not right because whenever there's a split in attention or love by man in that reunion you either see the children not being raised correctly and you had just the kids who were working with their parents or just the love or Merck? You know, and I point back to also um, in the garden, God, when he gave Adam Eve, he didn't give Adam Eve and Jane and Sue. He yep. gave Adam Eve. So I think that's probably a foundational point where I would look to yep. as saying that's, that's what God intended. Yep. That's good. Rachel, did you have something you want to add? Similarly, I was going to say, I think just by, by deduction that the Specifically, the the Bible calls out one man and one woman. Therefore, we can we can safely assume that multiple men or multiple women would not be in God's construct. Yep, yep. No, that's good. And I and I think just to that, I think that even here in Matthew chapter nineteen, Christ is really critiquing how his people had taken and understand and applied what he had set up for marriage. So divorce, I think, could fit into a similar category. So the, the Pharisees permitted all kinds of divorce, and they had completely abused what God had set up within the institution where this really was supposed to be protected in a lifelong covenant. And so that's why the disciples are like, man, you're crazy, Jesus. Like, this just isn't going to work. I think a similar thing could be said about polygamy in that, like, God in Genesis very clearly sets up this covenant. Christ in Matthew chapter 19 refers specifically back to this covenant as man, one man and one woman. And just through the, the hardness of the hearts of the people, they had kind of taken this covenant and not 
yeah, not followed it to the intent that, that God had truly had truly intended. But, but yeah, there's there's certainly a lot that could be said on polygamy in the in the New Testament. There's not a specific prohibition against it. However, um, elders in the church, for example, are required to be a one wife kind of a person. So um, I think that that sin does all kinds of different things to this relationship, and there's there's grace that still exists for it. So for the the person that is in a polygamous relationship, for the person that's been divorced and remarried, um, I think those are all things that are outside the ideal that God has prescribed. I think his grace still comes in those situations and in, in the mess. So um, I'm going to punt this to next week and let Garrett talk a little bit more about <laughs> what do we do when, when marriage is messed up. And Garrett's going to talk more about the fallenness of our sinfulness and how that how that affects some of these marriage marriage covenants. So the only other thing I'd add is that it's just again if we think back to what the picture is of, of Christ and the church is where the polygamous relationship really just breaks down and yep. things are okay. Christ gave himself to the church, not for the church and for another non profit organization or country, <laughs> all these other things Christ gave himself yep. to the church. Yeah, that's really good. All right, so your your second point there. Um, so we looked, at, we looked at this. This is what God does and defines. Now we're going to switch and we're going to look at this second relationship, the covenant that man and woman enter into. Marriage is a lifelong covenant that magnifies God's love. Um, so I didn't mention this at the front. There's some Bonhoeffer quotes in there. Many of you may know Bonhoeffer's story. Um, he was engaged to his fiancée, was arrested in Nazi Germany for trying to overthrow Hitler, and so a lot of his thoughts and reflections on marriage are him writing back to his family and back to his fiance while he's in jail. And so he dies in jail, and he never actually gets married. He stays single. But he's got some really sweet thoughts on the, um, yeah, the eternal perspective on marriage and how that should impact how we view it here and now. Okay, so let's go to Ephesians chapter 5. That's where we're going to start. going to start in verse 15. Let's set the context real quick. Uh, and could someone read uh, Ephesians 5, 15 down to 21 for me? So this is, this is kind of the introduction, the context, if you will, before we actually get down to Paul's prescription for husbands and wives and how they're supposed to relate to each other. Um, I think the so clearly the context is you're in, you're in evil days um, and you need to understand what God wants you to do. I think the controlling aspect here, this isn't my insight, this is from other, <laughs> other men of, of the Lord, but there in verse 18... Where it says, be filled with the Spirit. That's really kind of the action verb that controls that whole section. So 
being filled with the Spirit, and then the, the following things, the list that kind of comes from that, those are all kind of participles that just kind of roll on top of this one action, be filled with the Spirit. So I think that gets back to what we were talking about earlier. This relationship right here and what God intends for it doesn't work unless his Spirit is actively involved and guiding us, controlling us, enabling us, encouraging us to do the things that God requires of marriage because it's, it is a very high standard that he expects of it. Um, yeah, so let's go then to uh, verses One more piece of context as we come into this passage. I think it's important to remember that um, when God created everything in Genesis chapter 1, he's going to create it and he's going to say, it's good, it's good, it's good. The repetition of everything that he's creating, it's good. The first thing that's not good is for, for man to be alone in Genesis chapter 2. It's not that Adam was, was lonely, but that he didn't have someone that was a helper for him. And so... I think that, that God in that was saying it's not good because he's not reflecting this special covenant relationship that I'm going to have with my people. Man's not able to do that by himself. And so woman is created. And then um, there in verse 32, um, the mystery of a man leaving his father and mother, holding fast to his wife, the two becoming one flesh. Verse 32, this mystery is profound. I'm saying that it refers to Christ in the church. And so Paul's looking at what happened in Genesis chapter 2. Paul's looking at how Christ understood what God did in Genesis. And he's saying that, that this is a picture of what Christ does for his church. And so marriage is temporary. Earthly marriage is a picture that points us forward. And what is permanent, what is true, what is lasting is how Christ is going to relate to his people. So just, just think through with me just a little bit about some of the, the implications there. Um, Paul's using covenant language here, so it's the leave and cleave language. And this, this really harkens back to the covenants that God made with his people, like with Abraham, when he, when he sets the animals out and he cuts the animals in half, and God says, if I break my covenant with you, let this happen to me, basically. And so there's, there's, a, there's a permanence there that's sealed with, with blood oftentimes in the Old Testament covenants. And that's the, the language that we're hearkening back to, that there's permanence here. Christ will never leave his bride. There's also an intimacy here. There's no relationship that man has that's more intimate than a marriage relationship. Between the, the sexual intimacy that's there, the, 
proximity, you spend your time with this person, you get to know their thoughts, their desires, their loves, their wishes, their struggles. Christ uses this relationship, or more specifically, God created this relationship to help describe the level of intimacy, the level of love, the level of affection, the level of care and compassion that God has for you as his people. And I think that's, that's really kind of profound if you stop and, and you stop and think about it. God's not a removed, distant, faraway God who doesn't know and understand his people. God wants the depth of relationship, the deepest depth of relationship with his people that he could have. And the, he uses the picture of the most intimate relationship that mankind knows. I think it's important to note that this temporal relationship that we have in marriage is really the incomplete picture, right? It's the picture that doesn't actually show the true depths of God's love towards his people. It's the institution that breaks and fails and has two sinners in each other that don't actually love each other the way that God does. God himself never breaks covenant. God himself never stops loving. He never changes his mind and decides that he's not going to love his church, his bride, the way that he has always loved them and the way that he's promised that he will always do. So I think that there's, there's just a really sweet picture here for the church, for Christians and believers to meditate on, to look to Christ, and to realize that, that yeah, he really loves his church that much. There's a, there's a depth of the relationship here of God towards his people. Um, just, as God, just as God made marriage in his own image, so he made earthly marriage in the image of his eternal marriage with his people. And that's why I think that it becomes important that we say that, that staying married is mainly not about staying in love, right? It's not about whether or not I continue to like this person for the rest of my life. Because <laughs> you're probably not. There's going to be times where you're not going to really like each other. You're not really going to feel like you love each other. Um, it's primarily about keeping covenant, though, because it's a picture of the covenant that God made with his people that can never fail. And so marriage as a picture represents that. And there's, a, there's a, a sacredness that comes with that picture as a result. Um, so I think then there's also just a, a depth here that God takes violation to the covenant very seriously. Uh, so let's flip back to, yeah, we're going to come back to Ephesians, but back in our, in our Matthew passage, Matthew chapter 19 again. Matthew chapter 19, can someone read um, verses 7 to, 7 to 9? They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? He said to them, Because of your hard work, Moses allowed you to your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Yeah, that's great. So, so Christ is saying from the beginning, God did not have divorce in mind. Paul, later, like in Romans chapter 7, is going to say that the law binds a married woman to her husband as long as that husband is alive. He's going to say the same thing in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. So there's, a, there's this understanding that there's this lifelong covenant 
Divorce is not supposed to be in the picture. It's an aberration. So I think that when we, when we do come to the subject of divorce, Christ clearly does talk about potential ways that divorce could happen through sexual immorality. Um, that, in general, is not the way that it's supposed to happen. And so the, the same thing with remarriage. This isn't a covenant that you can enter into, get divorced, and then flippantly enter into to remarriage with another person. Christ specifically says there that that, that can be adultery, to just leave one covenant, enter into another covenant, you're now committing adultery with that person. Um, yeah, so I, that, that's something that, that God takes very seriously as a result of the special relationship that it reflects about him. Um, then, so then back in Ephesians, um, Paul's going to apply this specifically to the individuals in the covenant, both to the the husbands and to the wives and lay out specific responsibilities that each is supposed to fulfill. Um, in Ephesians, so in Ephesians chapter 5, uh, starting in verse 25, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Um, yeah, so let me just put that back as a question. It's kind of a it's kind of a big statement. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. What do you guys think that it means for husbands to to love their wives as Christ loved the church? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. Like Philippians chapter two, have this attitude in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus. It's not, not contingent on how that other person responds back. Through, yeah, Thomas? Yeah, that's great. Um, so let me, let me lay some John Henderson on you here. Um, <laughs> <laughs> A man is not called to love his wife as she deserves, but as Christ deserves. Your refusal to love her wife for whatever reason is not firstly a statement about our wives or even our view of our wives. It is firstly a statement about Jesus Christ and our view of, of Jesus Christ. So, um, you know, the way the husband loves his wife is really a statement of what he thinks about Christ. What did Christ do for him? How did Christ love him and sacrifice 
itself for him, as we as we just talked about. So just a couple of of maybe more specifics there. Um, husbands are called both to, to lead and to love. So as we talked about, Christ's love wasn't passive, it was active. It sought us out while we were still in sin. It was focused on the salvation of his church. It was sacrificial in nature. Um, I think that, that that leads to a couple different things. Certainly there's protection that's involved, both from a, a physical standpoint. There's a bad guy downstairs trying to break in. <laughs> I, think, I think guys are called to lead in the, in the protection of their homes. Uh, there's also a, a spiritual protection, right, that Satan is looking for souls to devour, and that includes the souls of your family. And so I think that there's a, there's a, a washing of the word, like we talked about, a, a leading in, in prayer and in the spirit, looking to guard your family spiritually. Um, I think there's also provisional aspects, and again, these could both be, be spiritual and physical, just as the husband should make sure that his family is fed regular food, the husband also needs to make sure that he's feeding his family spiritual food, feeding them the, the bread of the word so that they can be nourished and that their souls can grow and that they can love Christ and they can see him and his beauty as they ought to see him. Um, I do think it's good to, to just pause real quick and remember that even though husbands are to love like Christ, husbands are not Christ, right? <laughs> so... Um, for the wife that is going to expect that the husband is going to be perfect, that's, that's not a realistic expectation. Husbands are fallen. Um, and I think for the, for the husband as well, I think it's important that this, this isn't a license of authority to abuse. This isn't something that gives you the right to have a heavy hand. I mean, quite the opposite, right? Like, Christ suffered and died. He was, he was willing to sacrifice himself to the point of death. Um, and so I think there's, there's a weighty responsibility here where the husband is going to give an account to God of how he represented Christ to his wife and how he carried that, that role that God had assigned to him. Um, and then just loving, as we talked, as I mentioned earlier in Philippians chapter 2, I think specifically to husbands, since husbands are carrying this role forward to their wife, that husbands are to have this attitude in themselves, which is also in Christ Jesus, that he humbled himself to the point of death. And so love that is sacrificial, that doesn't consider your own interest, but considers your interest of your wife as the interest that you pursue first and foremost. Um, so on the wife side, there's also specific instructions that are given to the wife. Um, let's flip over to First Peter chapter 3. Uh, Peter's going to discuss in very similar manner as Paul talks about back in Ephesians, the way that a, a wife is supposed to submit um, to the husband as this picture of the church submitting um, to Christ. So again, the, the way that a wife submits to her husband is primarily a reflection of her view of the church and her view of Christ. Um, and so for a wife to say that, you know, that that husband is not worthy of submission is really her saying, hey, Christ is not worthy of me submitting to. Um, and for, I guess further than that, the level of submission that Christ had to the Father, the wife can also picture and show. Um, again, Christ humbled himself to the point of being mocked and crucified. And so God's not calling wives to be mocked and crucified the same way that Jesus was, but rather to be respectful and honoring towards their husbands. Um, 
So what is submission? Let's read 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Can someone read that for me? So wives, be subject to your husbands. Um, So just a a definition to throw out there. This comes from Piper's exposition of this passage. He says that submission is the divine calling of a wife to honor and affirm her husband's leadership and to help carry it through according to her gifts. So I think, again, the fall comes into play here. So just as husbands are not Christ, they're tempted to abuse their authority, um, I think a wife, too, needs to be reminded that that submission is not just checking out, not being involved. This doesn't mean that wives stop thinking, that she has to follow the husband in the sin. There's a lot that we could, could flush out here in terms of what that specifically looked like. But in terms of a positive definition, we're really talking about a, a posture that seeks to faithfully illustrate how the church responds to Christ, joyfully following the leadership of Christ himself. So um, I'm not going to dig too much more on that. We'll let Garrett talk a little bit more about some of the implications of that next week. Um, just some of the characteristics that that has, just noticing it there in the text. So I think that um, we would hope in God, verse 5. This is how holy women hoped in God. So a, a wife's role in the marriage, like ultimately the hope is in Christ. Ultimately the one that she's submitting to is Christ. And not necessarily in the husband, Hope in the husband to the extent that God has given this husband. It's a great gift but that looks forward to Christ. And so holy women look to hope in God, and that's where they adorn themselves. Um, the internal adornment of a quiet and gentle spirit, I think, marks this posture. So there in verses 3 and 4, don't let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry. Rather, let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart, the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. And so I think that when, when Paul, in a similar concept, is going to talk in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 about how a, a believing wife living with an unbelieving husband can stay with him in order to, to minister the gospel to him and to, to sanctify their children, I think that's, that's kind of what Peter's getting at here as well, that that quiet and gentle spirit has a, a power and a strength to it, both to, to minister to the husband and to minister to the, the people watching the covenant about this is the way that a wife submits to her husband can be a powerful testimony to the gospel. And that, that message of submission that our, our culture kind of chafes at and doesn't like is really an important part of this picture that God has built into the system. And so, um, yeah, you can, you can set up your home however you like, <laughs> but husbands are called to, to love and to lead and Wives are called to, to submit and to follow the way that, that Christ has prescribed. Um, 
Uh, so I think there's just a fearlessness that comes from this. So this isn't, this isn't a submission that's kind of cowering in the corner and is afraid and is afraid to, to speak up or to think. Um, so just as there in verse 6, the example of, of Sarah and Abraham. Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. You are, your, you are her children if you do good and you do not fear anything. So I think there's a, there's a fearlessness that comes through faith, and that, that faith is what really sustains us. Um, I, th- there's also just a picture of this submission that we all participate in in various levels. So wives submitting to their husbands, all of us submitting to the various earthly institutions, to governance, to our, our church leaders, to appropriate family structures, that, those pictures of submission are, are pictures that are going to continue in heaven, right? So we don't think that submission is a, is a bad thing that's going to go away. We think that submission is a good thing that's part of God's good created order. So we will all in heaven submit to Christ. We will all be under the rule and the authority and the reign of the kingdom of God forever. And so this practice of submission and our heart's posture is a, is a good thing. that again, is a picture that points forward to eternity, um, yeah, so any, any thoughts or questions there, the, the covenant of marriage between a man and a woman? We want to make light of it. Yeah. God assigns a lot of weight to this, and we just want to kind of, ha-ha, <laughs> blow it off. We want to be able to get in and out of the relationship when it suits us. Um, and, yeah, so that's a great example. All right, so the final point. Um, so we talked about how marriage is fundamentally an institution defined by God, something that God gives as a gift, that this is a, a covenant between these two people that reflects what God wants about his character and his purposes. And I think it's also just important to remember that, that marriage is something that looks outward. So it's not just an institution where people are pouring their emotional energy just to each other. 
It's also meant to bless those that are around it through the participation of the picture, through children that come through marriage. So that's our third point there. Um, so just children first, point A. Make, marriage is for making children and for making them followers of Christ. Uh, just for sake of time, we're not going to turn there, but one of the first commands that's given to Adam and Eve is to fill the earth and subdue it, right? Basically have babies. <laughs> that was the, the command that God gave him. That's something that's repeated again after the flood. So Noah comes off the ark, and again, this command is repeated to, to fill the earth and subdue it. I think there's just a, a natural attitude that comes from recognizing that when God, God gives a covenant of marriage, God gives the blessing of children. So children are, are to be received and welcomed in this institution as a, as a good thing, right? It's not fundamentally something that gets in my way or keeps me from doing what I really want to do or fulfilling my purpose or pursuing my career. Children are a good thing that God has given with the covenant. And um, they're a blessing. They're a good responsibility from God. And so I think that it's really, yeah, it's critical that the church model this response to children. So I think this affects all sorts of areas that we could talk about that we're not really going to get into for time, but, but certainly abortion, certainly adoption, certainly in terms of, of couples being willing to rec- or accept the gift of children that God has given to them in various ways that that looks like. And I think that really stands as a testament to the world around that just wants to see children either as something that is an idol, right? So this child is going to perfect me, complete me, um, achieve things in soccer that I never achieved, uh, you know, whatever, whatever it may be along those lines, or view it as an annoyance, an inconvenience, something that wakes me up in the middle of the night, doesn't let me sleep, is always demanding. So I think those are the ditches, and the Christian response is to say that, that children are a good thing that are given by God, and it's a natural extension of this covenant relationship, where in this covenant relationship, there's working outwards to make physical children, but then also also spiritual children. Uh, so let's just flip over to Romans 9 real quick. Romans 9, verse 8. So um, Paul here in Romans chapter 9 is addressing the question of who are actually children of God. And he's, he's talking directly to the people that would say, well, it's the, the physical children of Abraham that are actually the true children of God. So can someone read there for me um, chapter 9, verse 8? Yeah, thank you. Yeah, so it's the children of the promise that are the true children of God. And so I think that this is something where... Um, looking outside of marriage, this is something that we all participate in. It's the, the people becoming children of God is a process that doesn't happen through physical regeneration. It's something that happens through the spirit, and it's something that happens through the proclamation of the word. And so even the giving of physical children, again, is a picture that points to what the kingdom of God does, the children of God do in bearing children. And so that's why Paul can, in his letters, refer to them as, as children and say, I am your father spiritual father in the faith. And there's something that, that lasts there that doesn't last with physical children. Death is going to separate us. But in the spiritual kingdom of God, those relationships are going to last for eternity. 
Um, and so then just transitioning there into to point B, that for all, for singles, for everyone around, marriage is a temporary picture of the kind of love and relationship that God desires for his people. And so that, that everybody that's out looking in can see what this picture is doing in terms of reflecting Christ, reflecting his church. And um, it's something that, that points to the intimacy of the relationship that we can all, all share in, in the final day. Um, and because of that, I think that there's, there's a lot of hope for maybe people that's like, hey, I really wish I could be married, but I'm not married. Mark touched on this well last week. Um, I think a big takeaway from this is that the most intimate relationship that you can have, the best, longest-lasting, most permanent relationship you can have is with Jesus Christ, right? Married or unmarried, whatever your station in life, you can have that relationship with Jesus Christ now. That's the permanent relationship. So pour yourself into that relationship. Invest in that intimacy with Christ now because that's the intimate relationship that we're all working towards the day that the, the veil is completely gone and we stand seeing Christ face to face. That's what we long for. That's what we, we work towards both in marriage and out of marriage. Whether we are part of the picture or whether we are looking to the picture, we all are working towards the day that we will see Christ Jesus, be in his presence and we will experience that, that true intimacy that God designed for his people. So back to the garden, back to Adam and Eve. There's a day that all of this stuff in life that messes up marriage, that causes that covenant to fail, that sinfulness that's in our heart, that's all going to be washed away. And we're going to be with Christ in a, in a perfect world, perfect people, perfectly enjoying that fruit of that intimate, deep relationship that God designed for his people. Um, yeah, and so I think that's why, that's why Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 can say, you know, personally, I would rather that y'all all remained unmarried. <laughs> like, if you could do that, that's, that's better because you can devote yourself to the Lord. So I think there's, there's a lot of hope there for us, whether it's marriage that's tough, marriage hasn't happened, marriage fell apart, is no longer... All of those things are going to be swept away in the day that Christ wipes away every tear and Christ makes every wrong right again. So, um, yeah, are there any, any final thoughts or comments? Actually, yeah. real quick, you mentioned something about submission earlier and how that um, will continue into heaven. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm curious, in Genesis 3, it seems that submission of the wife to her husband as a result of the fall. Um, it says in verse 16b, your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. So as a result yep. of the fall, does that really continue into, or is it simply a is saying that the relationship is somehow marred? Yeah, so I, I would understand that to be the, the perversion, right? Like your desire will be a go against the good design that God has given. Um, so with that, with the comment, though, that submission continues into eternity, I was thinking specifically of 1 Corinthians 11.3. We didn't read it, but just real quick. Um, Paul says, I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of the wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. So that chain of submission, God, Christ, husband, wife, that's something that continues in the kingdom of God where we will joyfully, happily, and forever submit to our, our maker as God designed us to. So... Um, so that submission you were talking about was to Christ. Yeah, in eternity. Right. Yeah, yeah. Because as we mentioned, as we mentioned, yeah, physical marriage is temporary, so there is no marriage in heaven. 
So we're not, wives aren't submitting to husbands, but we're submitting to Christ the way that marriage points to that internal covenant. Yep. That's great. All right. Eric, would you mind closing us in prayer? Our Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you so much for this picture of uh, Christ's love for the church. Lord, we thank you, Lord, that that Jesus gave his life, that we could be redeemed, that we could know an intimacy with you that is deeper than any bond of intimacy in human marriage. Lord, we know that human marriage points to that, and we pray, Father, for the marriages in this church, Lord, that they would represent well, by your grace, the gospel and the, and the eternal hope that we have. Father, we do pray that um, you would remind us daily um, that our eternal uh, hope and where we're headed is to a place where there isn't marriage, but there is eternal marriage as as the bride of Christ, as your people uh, with Jesus and with you forever, Lord. We long for that. We look forward to it. We pray you'd encourage us, strengthen us, bless us, make us uh, a blessing to others. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.